Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to another one of our podcasts from Wessex LMCs. My name is Louise Greenwood, and in the light of the challenges that the Strep A situation have brought to general practice in the last few days, this podcast is going to focus on safe working in general practice. We're particularly delighted to welcome Richard Van Malartz, Deputy Chair of the GP Committee England of the BMA, to talk, chat with us today, and our own Ed Rendell, Medical Director here at Wessex LMCs. And they're going to discuss what safe working might look like on the ground for GPs and all the staff working in general practice, which is obviously very pertinent at the moment. So, um, yes, Ed, where do we start with this one? Yeah, um, interesting. I was going to say um, thanks for joining us, Richard. It's good to see we, we, we you kindly came down to our joint members conference last year. So it's really good to see you there. I'm just aware that um, before we get into this, I'm quite new to this sort of role. So um, I didn't really understand what your role was. Um, before I joined the LMC in April. So I was just wondering if you can sort of give us a flavour of why, why we're talking about this, why you're here and what you tend to do is in your role, please. Sure. Well, th- thanks ever so much for having me. Um, so I'm, I'm a uh, GP in southwest London um, and I am elected to represent general practice uh, from southwest London to the GP committee, the BMA. And uh, about a year ago, I was then appointed as uh, deputy chair uh, under Barrow Jamil. Um, uh, of GPC England. So and our role is to represent um, general practice nationally and negotiate with NHS England uh, on our contract and sort of and deal with those kinds of operational issues as, as well as sort of going out and, and engaging with LMCs and GPs across the country so we can know what sort of issues you're experiencing and how we can go about trying to make things better for general practice and their patients. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so we're we're talking. I think, as we said, we're we're in a week of huge pressure with uh, all the um, media coverage of Group A strep and huge pressure from our practices we've been experiencing um, recently. Um, so we're here to talk about safe working in general practice. And the reason I was talking about this before, and it's it, it's quite a new concept to people. Can you just describe the overall concept, please? So safer working is really about trying to look after our GPs. And, and colleagues in our practice so that we can look after our patients. Because, I mean, general practice is in a real crisis at the moment. We've, we've, there's not enough of it. And those that are here, we are working far too hard, um, which is having a significant impact on GPs, health and well-being. And, uh, and you know, we know that we've lost 1,900 GPs since 2015. Um, and, uh, and we know that on average, GPs are working 37 hours a week. Um, and many, many GPs are working 10, 12 hours a day, and that's just not sustainable. That's not healthy for anybody. And for every GP that finds themselves having to reduce their hours or leave the profession, it has a significant impact on their patients. Um, and so we, we, we've been looking at ways that practice can take control back of, um, of the sort of workload that they're experiencing in order to try to better look after their patients and better look after themselves. Thanks. I might bring Louise in here, actually, because we were talking before about it's the sort of concept to get your head around. I think I think a good analogy is sort of like a HGGV fiver or a pilot where there's a certain amount of um, uh, time they can do in a sort of, you know, safe working practice. Louise, how, how does that sort of explanation work with you? Does that? Yes, I, th- I think it's something when you talk about safer working and talking just um, with um, colleagues and, and, and friends, they say, well, 
Safer working for GP, does that mean health and safety? Does that mean infection control? What do we mean by safe? Does it mean protecting them from difficult but violent patients? And the concept of actually um, a pilot having to take enforced rest because they've done so many hours, they're not safe to carry on flying. When you put it in that context, it makes so much more sense because obviously the pressure of the job and when you're making decisions all the time. So I think that that, that concept is new, but I think it's concept and real. And when you, when you can actually, and related to other professions, it makes a lot more sense. So have you have you seen Richard examples? It's fairly new. So have you seen examples of where it's been used? Your own practice, your own PCN, or you must have lots of uh, examples of it um, nationally. Have you got instances so, where it's helped? Yeah. So so th- there's lots of different examples, and and of course it, it's really important that we remember that general practice is really different across the country. I'm I'm a GP in in Kingston in Southwest London, um, and and what worked for my practice probably wouldn't work for many practices in Wessex. And so it's really important that practices don't have a sort of a cookie cutter approach, but they look at what works for them, what works for their patients. But sort of the fundamentals are looking at how many patients, how many interactions you're having with patients every day and trying to bring that down to safe levels. Because I talk to many GPs who on a duty day uh, are having 100 interactions with patients, making, you know, and and that's just not safe for anybody. And so, you know, there's the concept of decision fatigue, which, you know, is well recognized in the airline industry. That if you keep making decisions, they get worse and worse once you get once you get past a certain point. So we're looking at 25 to 35 patient consultations per day as being a safe level. And beyond there, that's not safe. Now, people worry about is this is this something I can do? Is this within my contract? Um, and uh, it, it, our, our GMS contract say that we need to provide for the reasonable needs of our patients. And, and reasonable is what you define in your practice. Um, so, so in my practice, we have um, capped our appointments at 31 per GP per day. That's morning um, and afternoon together. Now, that means that we fill our appointments, we do some um, early triaging, um, so make sure that those we're, we're fitting in those people that need to be seen on the day. We do have the odd extra, of course. You know, we'll do that. You know, particularly when we're thinking about things like the group A strep at the moment. Those ill kids, none of us are going to leave them um, to go elsewhere. But we're also utilising overflow hubs, um, extended access, directing people to NHS one one one. The access to general practice is really it's up to NHS England to get right. We don't have to fix everything within our practice. Uh, we don't have to provide endless access. I think that came up. We, were, we had a practice manager webinar, and I think that came up. A, a sort of it's the hard bit is a relationship with the patients and that that feeling of guilt of you know where are they going to go and what we're going to do. And uh, uh, yeah, to, to that point, I suppose, what do you think NHS England should be doing in in this area to if practices enact this? What what would you see as the best model for? where patients can go. And just to add into it, as I said, we had a discussion with practice managers yesterday and they said, well, 111, just push it back to us again. Yeah. So, you know, the patient, if we're not careful, is on the cycle of going nowhere. And that's a concern. So, uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. None of us want to push patient, patients around the system. That's not what we're here for, is it? Um, and so uh, we've got a job to do nationally through, through what I do to um, get to NHS England to uh, sort this out. Also, LMCs, you know, very used to dealing with these issues on a local level. Um, and again, you know, there are many there are many parts of the country that don't have walk-in centres and things of that sort. Even if you're going to a rural area, then patients don't necessarily want to go travelling miles and miles um, to go to see somebody else. They would like to be able to have access um, to 
general practice in a in a timely manner. But what we've got to do is to find a way of not massively overburdening uh, GPs to the point where they just can't simply make, keep doing the job because you know we all know people that have burnt out um, or left the profession. And and in order to make sure that we've got a general practice which continues on to the, into the future, we've got to wrestle back control of this demand and and actually. Reducing down the appointments that we offer will actually give better care to those people that we do yeah. see. Uh, Fifteen-minute appointments is, is one example. Doing that yeah, kind of thing, we've we've done that in our practice. So we, well, we haven't. We've gone to twelve-minute appointments, but it has helped. And I think there are. I think that's the point you were saying. There's, I think list capping or that concept sort of hits the headline in this. But there's quite a lot on your website about different areas you can look at with this in terms of. Um, you know, choosing about non-essential local contracts. Um, uh, and the other bit I think was quite interesting was patient participation groups. It's sort of advising using them as an ally and helping with this. Have you, have you got any comment on that? Please? Yeah, so, so so our patients are really our allies in this. And so talking to them about what we're doing and why we're doing it is really crucial. And ha- having them help us design our services. Because, you know, like you know your practice, um, your patients know what they want and they need as well. So having them on side is is really crucial in this. And, and like you say, capping is only one part of the solution. That it's looking at those things which are coming into our practice, which we don't need to do. Um, so you know, I often like to quote Zamo from Grange Hill at this point and say, and you know, just say no. So yep. it's it's those it's it's the it's the work that's coming to us from secondary care that shouldn't be coming to us, which I know LMCs are really hot on, but pushing that back, you know, not doing those things that we're not contracted to do. Um, and, you know, make it, making sure that we use our colleagues um, from uh, the ARS staff, from, from the uh, PCN desk, if you've got those them in your practice, using them to provide support for your core general practice. And remembering that things like IIF, uh, the Investment and Impact Fund, are optional. You don't have yeah. to be doing them. It's not obligatory. And so if you stop doing some of that sort of stuff, then it frees up those staff time to come and support um, our GPs and colleagues in practice. Okay. So we, we're not saying like you have to look at this and do everything in one go. You can, you can look at your own circumstances of practice and choose the ones you want to do over time and, and just look at how you do it in the whole way. I think the list, the list, um, we had a sort of email conversation about this concept. I, th- I think it's helpful to hear that, you know, what you do in your practice, because I think there is this perception of um, how this is played into the contract to be a reasonable needs of the population. And we, we talked on the email about sort of list funneling. So perhaps this concept of you, I think it's what you're doing essentially, where you, you sort of, you you triage at the start, and you might bring things in early in the day, and then you you narrow the funnel and you, you make it, well, I might see the odd extra who's, um, not so serious like a stroke, I'm going to send them straight to hospital and not so routine like a fungal t- nail infection. But that that sweet spot, you know, perhaps a palliative care, care patient in the last days of life or a, a small charge you feel you need to assess. Have you got any views on that sort of concept? I, th- I think that that sounds like a really good idea. I think that's, I mean, that's the sort of thing that practices are doing already. And so, and it's formalizing this kind of thing and, and, and thinking about it in a way as where we, we've, We've got to look after our GPs in order to look after the patients. And so having this kind of thing where actually people are not dreading going into work on, on a duty day. We've actually banned the word duty doctor in my practice. We have a swear jar 
if you <laughs> use the word duty doctor, you put a pound in the jar because yes. it's it's so unpleasant um, for, for for GPs doing that. And so we've sort of instituted more triaging. Um, and you know, there's loads of different ways that practices are doing it. Some some places are using AI. They're um, upskilling their reception uh, uh, and admin staff. They're using paramedics. They're using physicians assistants. Uh, some places are using GPs. Whether they they call everybody, do total triage, or whether they actually sit in reception with the care coordinators and upskilled reception staff to support them in their decision making. And those kinds of things do start to make a difference. And I think whenever we make any changes in that practice, patients find it unsettling and difficult initially. But actually, if we can demonstrate we're providing a better service and a more sustainable service, because whilst we might actually be reducing our appointment by capping them or doing other things, actually we're going to lose far more if somebody retires or reduces their sessions or burns out. Yeah. Richard, can I just come in there? So you... 31 is the, is the number you've, ten, you've decided on. How did you get to that 31? So it's incremental changes. You know, there's no big bang. You know, you, you're making small, creeping changes um, and, and watching and testing and seeing how you go. And as I say, it's got to be really specific to your patients, your practice and your GP. And equally, the mix of professionals we've got in our practices are all very different. I talk to some practices and they've got um, multiple, multiple GPs and very few non-GP clinicians and other practices have a very different mix and so looking at what you're doing what your patient needs are and my practice looks after 8,000 university students um, if I go to a, a, a practice um, down the road then they've got a much much older demographic and so the way that we then manage it is radically different so you've, it's really got to be sensitive to what you do as a practice what your patients are like and what your your staff are like so how do you right now create the headspace to think that stuff through? Because I imagine everything you're saying, people are saying that makes perfect sense. But oh, my goodness, I'm so overwhelmed with the demand. I haven't even got the time to think. So actually, at the moment, with what's happening with Group A Strip, we're all being inundated with urgent, on the day, sick, hot kids with sore throats. And so we are probably all pivoting slightly as to how we're providing care for our patients based upon that. And it's using those kinds of opportunities to think about shifting around. Think about how many contacts you're having a day. If you're having more than 40 in a day, you're not at safe levels. So starting to shift around who they get seen by, where they get seen, how effective is, are things working in triage? Are you seeing lots of patients that don't need to be coming in to see a GP? You know, I, could you be making better use of um, the community pharmacy consultation service? Could you be making better use of your clinical pharmacist, your FDPs in your practice, people of that sort? So, um, Are there more things you can say no to? Are there things that you can be bouncing out or using other systems um, in, order to, uh, in order to accommodate some of these people? Because you know, each time if you're taking a couple of patients off a GP every day and moving them somewhere else in the system, completely broken so they get the care they need, that, that doesn't mean that then there's more capacity to fill because we're over capacity, but it means that actually that person's got a little bit more breathing room and, and you can start making a little bit of a change over time. Because we, you know, I used to have um, 36 appointments per day plus telephone calls um, and things of that sort. Um, but actually we've um, crept down to that 31. I'd like to get it down further. Um, we cap um, prescriptions. We cap um, 
Docman um, documents coming through as well. And we do that by using those other staff. They're using a clinical pharmacist, using a, um, uh, a, a pharmacy technician and um, trained up administrators to try to take as much out of our labs as possible and using, using our GPs and their clinicians to do the things that only they can do. And once you start doing that, then there's, you know, all small increments which actually add up to give you a little bit of breathing room. What I've got in my place isn't, isn't perfect by any means. And I don't think I've spoken to anybody that's got the perfect solution. But there's all little bits that we can all share and we can all borrow and steal off each other, which can actually put some, you know, enjoyment back into our jobs. I like the concept of overtime sort of creeping and moving towards it. Did, would you have any advice to practices about whether to announce they're doing this, you know, go out to patients and say, well, I'll suddenly turn this on or tell the ICB uh, they're going to do it. And or would you, would you advocate more of a, a sort of incremental change and just, I suppose, just, you know, using the, the levers within the contract and not asking permission to do it. But what's your view on that? So, so I mean, I completely agree with that last point. You don't need to ask for permission to do this. It is within your gift in your practice to make these kinds of changes. Um, in terms of, you know, announcing it, talk, talk to your PPG, talk to your patients. Mm. I've, I've seen a letter that's gone out from a, a practice in Surrey this week saying that they are inundated with um, uh, with those hot febrile kids um, worried about scarlet fever. And so they're having to reduce down some of their um, ordinary work in order mm. to accommodate that. And patients have been really understanding. Mm. Surprisingly enough, the, the media has been understanding as well. Um, because actually people are starting to recognize the pressures that are under. So talk to your patients about this. Face them. We want to be able to continue to look after you, provide you with the best possible care. And in order to do that, we've got to change and evolve. Um, because patients aren't necessarily used to the different members of staff we've got in practice. They're not used to us communicating the changes that we go through with them. And whilst you might not have a D-Day where you suddenly radically change what you're doing, letting patients know it helps them out, helps them understand you, and it helps them help you. And the same with, same with uh, local commissioners as well. You know, these conversations through your LMCs saying, you know, general practice is really hard work at the moment. And so we're going to be supporting practice to make these changes because then these practices will still be about, these GPs will still be there. And actually, yeah, put, putting a bit of joy back into our work um, will mean that we, you know, we stay in the workforce and we can provide better care for our patients. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. It's been really interesting chatting that through. Um, I think for me, the take home is you don't have to do it all at once and that sort of incremental changes. And I think the other key message is just empowering practices to say, look, the BMA are saying this, LMCs are uh, supporting practices to to choose to do this. And it, it's within your gift as things are set up. Um, any uh, other last words from you? Anything you particularly wanted to um, push no, on? To, please, please do have a look at the um, the safer working um, web page on the BMA website. Yep. Um, so that I'm I'm constantly updating, um, adding more things onto, uh, uh, borrowing and stealing things from LMCs and, and other other sources across the country in order to make it a really good resource. But it's building on the work that you and other LMCs are doing already. Um, and so you know I, I would encourage practices to come and have a chat with someone like Ed or come and contact me if you want to hear about examples. Very happy to have a have a chat through or, or, or exchange emails. 
Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Ed. That has been absolutely fascinating. I love that little thing. Let's bring the joy back into general practice. I think that's a really, this time of year is particularly good, isn't it? So I think probably, Richard, if this is all right with you, we'll come back and chat to you in a couple of months' time, maybe, and just see how things are going and how things are progressing, how the practices are going, and see if we can sort of move this conversation on because it's fascinating, but it's new, and we want to see if it can make a really a really big impact. So thank you so much again for your time, Richard. Thank you, Ed. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with you again shortly for another podcast. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.